Talking Cash Podcast with your host, Ben Blanchard. Welcome to the Talking Cash Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Blanchard. Today, my guest is my good friend, John Davenport, an up-and-coming stand-up comedian in the Los Angeles area. John joins me on the mics to talk about his upbringing in southern Richmond, Virginia, his time spent at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, a lifetime of growing up with affluent people in private school systems, and a wonderful story about his time with Dave Chappelle at the Westside Comedy Theater. A few things from me, I'll be performing in Silver Lake this Friday at the Hot Wine Show. Next weekend, we've got the Comedy at the Manor Show in Venice, California on February 27th. And if you listen to this on Tuesday... Every Tuesday, the Commons Ale House Show at 8.30 p.m. in Santa Monica, California. Tonight, Steve Hernandez, Deborah DiGiovanni, Darren Rose, Ryan Connor, and Al Jackson. So join us in love and laughter and good times. But for now, enjoy John Davenport. Ooh, you get to share a Coke with Holly. That. John just brought in a Coca-Cola bottle. Nice. Do you know any Hollies? Yeah. I'm good friends with the Hollies. So you owe her a Coke. Well, I don't oh, know. is Holly, is Holly the one that uh, dates? Is she the improviser? She's married. She's married. Yeah, she permanently dates. Permanently dates, yeah. John Davenport on the Talking Cash podcast. John, say hello. Have we started yet? We're rolling. We're rolling? We've been rolling the whole time. Dude, you got to <laughs> give me fair notice, man. I got you good, dude. No, you got me real I good. I got you so good. Oh, man. Did I say anything vulnerable? Not yet. Okay, good. Well, yeah. at least I know I'm on the clock now. <laughs> sneak attack, you, man. Sneak attack, dude. That was... What was the question? How are you? Oh, good. It's I'm a, doing good. A simple, a simple, how are you doing? Oh, I'm wonderful, man. How are you? I'm doing all right. How's your life? Just, just all right, I would say. Just all right. Just all right. It's getting better. Well. Yeah. Okay. You know, hills and valleys in this in this crazy world we live in. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that completely. Yeah. So we met at Westside, I think, just from I both hanging so. out there. I think so. Yeah. I don't know if I'm, yeah, I don't know if I met you through Billy and Greg or just at the west side. Yeah, I think we were all just kind of roaming around there together. Yeah, yeah. So where were you when you were born? I was in the womb for the first part. After then, that, I was in the saw, hospital. And then you saw the light. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, I was really attached to the womb. Do you see this scar? Um, I like do. Right right here? Yes. I have one of those, too, from ba- from when I was a child. From childbirth. When I scratched myself with my fingernail. But oh, damn, dude! Yeah, you must have scratched yourself pretty hard, right? I don't see it. It's I think it's on the left side. You'll see it in the certain light. It's very small. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I got one like right here, 
Mm-hmm. And right, and like a little hole right here. John's like a pointing hole to his right cheek. He does have a hole punch on his it's right like cheek. It's like a little hole punch, right? And then he has like the frilly side of the paper that you tear on on the right side of his cheek to their scar. The frilly side, you know, of like the paper? like when you uh, when you have a notebook and you rip it out. Yeah, and then like the oh, I know what you're talking about. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, so well, that's from childbirth. Apparently, I was really attached to the womb, like actually connected to your mother's. Well, I was through the umbilical cord, okay. but I was emotionally attached to it. It's you know, it's warm in there. It's Very, really cozy. Well, we're always trying to get back to it. I know, I know. So I I didn't really have much interest in coming out, and uh, the doctor put the scalpels on my fucking face and he yanked me out. What a dick! So well, he dis- he disfigured you for your entire life. Basically, <laughs> yeah. Basically, I came out of the womb shedding blood. So he took it. He covered took the in scalpel. blood of your mother's and your own. I know. And he got me right here, and then it like cut the side of my face. Was he like, "Ooh, my bad"? <laughs> I would have loved, loved to have been conscious for that, just to see the look of the doctor's yeah. face. Like, shit, yeah. God damn it again. Uh, Jenkins, another one. Yeah, but I don't even know if that's true. That's, I mean, my yeah, my parents, just my parents can, told me that she could have just dropped you on a hot plate. And yeah, then, you know. or maybe she just. I was too good looking for her, and she was like, I gotta fuck this kid's face up somehow. Just love him. That's more. the beauty of childhood, though. We never know the real story. I know. Isn't it fortunate that we don't remember anything until we're four? There's a lot of things to learn and remember, but fortunately, we don't re- remember any of them. Kind of a shame and blessing in the same time. What if you remembered your first steps? I was talking to a friend that said he remembered year one, like an event in year one. Bullshit. I know. That's what I thought, too. Bullshit. I can't remember anything. I can't either. I don't think you can remember anything. I don't think your brain has developed memory at that age. That guy's bullshit. Unless it's traumatic, maybe you can... Still, one year old? I mean, it would have to be like like losing your sense of sight or something like that. Right, the last image you saw before you went blind. Exactly. It would have to be something really, really memorable. It wouldn't be like falling off your bike. Because you can't even ride a bike at year one. You haven't probably even seen a bike at year one yet. You can't even walk. Let what can you stand do? That's I, like, I see kids these days, and I'm like, I don't even know. Like, can she talk it? And she's like, she's four. Of course she can talk. Dude, <laughs> I'm so bad at that shit, too. I cannot gauge the age of any any kid. I don't know what they're supposed to do at certain times. No, I have two nieces, and I was like, is she walking or what's she doing? Yeah, she, she's like in school. She's in <laughs> kindergarten. <laughs> oh. Does she know her ABCs? No When idea. do you learn your ABCs? I kindergarten? Think, I think before. My, my niece, she was three when she started, like, Counting and like understanding letters, but that might be maybe know. she's ahead of the curve. Yeah, though. she could be ahead of the. So I it, know that I was in diapers until I was like four or five. Is that pretty late? That seems pretty late. Yeah, but then again, I pissed my pants when I was in second grade, so maybe I needed some diapers. Like, do you mean just like it was like no, it was like school bus ride home had to go so bad. As soon as I got out of the bus, ran home, just didn't make it home. Oh, but dude, that's emergency. Yeah, but yeah. That, that's incidental. Too many juice boxes. <laughs> just just pounding away on just those juicy juice juice grapes. Man. I remember juicy juice, man. That shit was good. Oh, real good. I, so I had good. a year where I like, bought it as an adult because it was just it brought me back to childhood. Really? And it was awesome I don't even know where you get juicy juice. Bottom, grocery bottom stores? aisle. Yeah. What are those grocery stores? I've been <laughs> one of those in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> juicy juice, man. I bet you it does not hold up. I bet you you taste it one now flavor. and you're like, mm, yeah. not good. The thing is, it's like, once you realize that all juices are basically the same shit, it's just like soda. They're all sugar. It's like you think juice is this healthy thing. It's not that healthy for you. No, I know. Yeah. 
Because mo- yeah, it's all sugar for sure. Like some of them even have more than than soda. That's hard to believe, man. Yeah, Coke like, has a lot of sugar in it. Like Snapple, I think has or like like an Arizona iced tea, like flavored like beverage really? has Those like have... fifty grams of sugar in it. Well, let's see how much this has. That should be like around twenty seven, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you way off. Damn it. 65 grams. 65 <laughs> per serving or for the whole? Th- per, per serving. And how much servings are in there? Uh, serving size is one bottle. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was thinking, well, yeah, so the 12 ounce is like about 27 to 30 grams or around there, 35. Give or take. So you're in the hospital. Yeah. Where's the hospital located? Richmond, Virginia. In Richmond, Virginia. That's so so can you can you tell me a little bit about... Kind of growing up there and the economy and what was what were people were doing for jobs there? Was there one huge industry? Yeah, the tobacco industry. The perhaps? tobacco industry. Yeah, Marlboro. The Marlboro factory is uh, is home to Richmond, Virginia, and uh, the company the company that makes Marlboro cigarettes is called used to be called Philip Morris. Now it's called Altria. I probably had. Was that a branding thing to get away from the stigma yeah, the, of they, Philip Morris? Yeah, Philip Morris. I well, you know, maybe it was just like a conglomerate kind of thing, but they definitely you you got to figure they didn't want to be called Marlboro, right? Because all these people are going to be like, "Oh, that's where the cancer sticks are made. Let's burn them down." Inevitably, letting off a huge tobacco bug amongst the whole city of Richmond. Yes, uh, and then they become addicted, and they're like, why did we burn it down? Yeah, we lost <laughs> our supply. So now i got to go to Winston-Salem. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah, uh, Richmond, basically the main industries in Richmond are like tobacco, uh, a lot of marketing now, and it's a Civil War relic. Right, so you get a lot of tourism from yeah, that. A lot of tourism, a lot of museums and shit. A lot of uh, staged plays. Reenacting the uh, the Civil War, dude. People keep asking me if I've ever done Civil War reenactments. I could see you as a Civil War general of some sort. <laughs> Andrew Caldwell just asked me that like last week. <laughs> well, like if you were a, a relative of like an old. Well, he was doing crowd work at this at this at lip service, and I was bartending, and he was. Oh, he had one in the chamber for you. Yeah, he he started calling me out. First of all, he said that. I did Civil War reenactments, and then I was fighting for the Union side. Unfortunately, just because I'm from Richmond, I would not be able to fight for the Union side. Because that's what it was in actual Civil War. If you were from south of the Mason-Dixon line, not allowed to fight for the Union. Of course. Hence the Civil War, the Hence, divide. Well, now now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's a surprising amount of people that have been asking me lately if I do reenactments. And I've never done one before. I bet it would be kind of fun. I think it would be a blast. It'd be like a more realistic version of a Renaissance fair. Let's go paintballing. How about we do a reenactment of the Civil War? Yeah. You know, and get like really into character. And like dress up and shit and like drink from canteens. Because you got to understand, all right, you do your your bit, you do the play or whatever, the reenactment, and then you get done you're like, that scene was amazing when you were down and your leg was amputated. Oh, yeah. You're just relishing the performance. And then you're just crushing beers afterwards and eating barbecue. Plus, after you die, you figure you could just, like, lay on the ground for, like, a minute or two and then just get up and walk over to the keg and yeah. just watch the rest of it. Because yeah. <laughs> you know they're they're plowing beer duration of the reenactment. That would be the best way to do it, I think. Everyone gets a flask. Well, that's what I hear, like the, red, like, those Ren fairs, like the Renaissance fairs, yeah. are kind of like that. That's what I... See, I can't imagine that it would be that different 
from a renaissance computer. Probably just a lot more men. A lot of men. <laughs> yeah. A lot of dudes. Probably pretty much exclusively men besides the nurses. Yeah. I didn't even think about the nurses. They're just running around with like these wheelbarrows and yeah. fucking limbs. Yeah. Limbs. <laughs> what a scene, Shoddy man. medical equipment. <laughs> That's funny to think about. <laughs> I, dude, I got to put that on the bucket list. I got to do a reenactment. I think, you know, that should be on everyone's bucket list. Who is your Civil War hero? Do you have one? Was it like, there's got to be the LeBron James of the, Civil War history. The LeBron James of the, of the South was Robert E. Lee. General. The general, yeah. You know what's weird is that like when you're from the South, you have so much more knowledge of the Civil War because it's like the most relevant thing in history. And because like you guys kind of lost. So yeah. it's like you're like bitter, so you have to know everything about yeah. it so you don't lose again when the second one happens. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> tend to forget the war a lot slower when you lose. That's why America— Like how many Red Sox fans could never forget about Bill Buckner losing the oh, 1986 yeah. World oh, Series same. until they won another one? Dude, Steve Bartman with the Cubs? Yeah, you think about that shit, and you're like, oh, if that one thing had gone differently, we would have been winners. And, the South and Robert E. Lee shit. would have been on the $50 bill and not Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah, there's a lot of great uh, Civil War like movies and like uh, biopics and shit, but— Gettysburg is really good. Yeah, if you're into, the, if you're interested, I've in been to Gettysburg. About that. Dude, I've been to Gettysburg too. In the last year, I went with my dad, and it is, it's something, man. It's pretty cool. It is. It's like walking over a really historical graveyard. Feel like the ghosts of, of the war. It's a little eerie. Like the preparation and the setup to that whole museum and the battlefield itself is outstanding. I remember some reenactors there. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Did you see some people playing Civil yeah, War on the, yeah, on and the battlefield? Like, well, like, they would have, like, I don't know if it was, like, Gettysburg. I think it was or some other place. But they would have, like, little shops. And the guy who worked at the shop was, like, a candle maker. And he, like, couldn't come out of character while he was making candles. <laughs> Dude, that's the kind of shit that you see in, like, Colonial Williamsburg. Right. Have you ever been there? Think so. I don't. I can't remember. I've been to like a couple like it's field trip. A, yeah, like, it's the kind of place you go on a field trip in yeah. elementary school and you barely remember it. Jamestown, Yorktown, and Williamsburg are the three. Like that's like the Bermuda Triangle of colonial history. Yeah, <laughs> all three of them in Virginia. So Richmond, Virginia. You get the tobacco guys. Get the marketers. When you were growing up, what were your folks doing? My dad was a lawyer, and uh, my mom was. A mom. Because your dad was probably raking in some good dough for the family, being a lawyer. Yeah, he put food on the table for all of us. We, we grew up comfortable. I wouldn't say that we were the richest people that I knew or was friends with. Uh, but, it, I mean, we were fairly well off. And I also had, I mean, I had four other siblings, so... Being a mom was probably a lot of work in that situation. Absolutely. Your your dad was probably thanking everyone that he was going to the office and not having to stay home with you guys. Oh, man, can you imagine, man? God damn! Like, especially since like I only just one or two, four, five, yeah. six. Like these families with with Dude, huge so armies waspy, of man. of children. It's so was- it used to be really Catholic, so now it's really waspy too. It's so strange because um, I was talking uh, to Joe Prano, and he has kind of a similar setup like his dad was working his mom was at home but four brothers it's like why are we reproducing this many kids anymore like we're so not you trying can strike gold on one i guess so <laughs> but who's to say that kid's gonna <laughs> reciprocate the gold on your way after well, you know 
who knows? You know, your chances only get higher if you have more. I say, fuck the kids. Keep that gold that you made yourself. Dude, <laughs> I'm with you, man. But who knows how we'll feel when we're like fucking. Oh, it could be 10 fun. years. Yeah, exactly. Eventually, you might want some little Ben Blanches running around. I around. know, right? God damn it. That's like bringing self-loathing to a whole new level. Yeah. And just seeing every bad part about you that's in that kid. I know. That must be a real wake-up call. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, you know, we'll delay that until the time comes. Dude, okay. <laughs> Keep living cool. our Part two of the our, podcast our, coming up in five to ten years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. <laughs> what kind of law did your dad do? Civil. He didn't talk about his work that much. Was that, you think, because he was sick of it and he didn't want to bring it home? Or was that just, were you interested you know, in it when he was? Not really. Like, he had some important cases. It was some dispute between the state and the church. So anytime you have church versus state, there's, like, a lot of, there's a high-profile case. They, they had a parking lot or something like that that was technically owned by the state. But because it was religious property... There was a whole bunch of gray area in terms of what the state could. So this is a this is over a parking lot. Essentially, <laughs> it was. Yeah, I think it was over a parking lot. It was like this big property dispute, and and your dad was on the state side. I think he was on the church side. He wasn't a criminal lawyer. Um, he wasn't, you know, representing murderers or bank robbers or anything like that. I think he most of it probably. That's probably the better lawyer to be. Probably. A little more consistent, probably. Yeah, a little more low key. Probably not as much minimal, stress. minimal death threats. Well, who knows? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, those state, I, those I, state officials, I've, man, they can dude, be. Really... I've threatened to kill people over parking spots before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. not alone an entire lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let alone the entire <laughs> lot. Oh yeah, I'll fuck some people up over a parking spot right? for sure. When you were growing up, you said that you were kind of upper middle class, and yeah. was were you guys in a bubble, or did you were you exposed to totally, extreme poverty? Or? Totally a bubble. Totally a bubble. And what, like you think of, um, you know, like the suburbs. Are you doing like are you doing like private schools too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was in the same private school from not kindergarten but junior kindergarten, so through twelfth grade. What? Can you explain what junior kindergarten is? Because it's the first time I've ever heard that term before. I know. I think it's it's, it's it, basically it's like, like school. It's a fifth year of preschool. I think. I don't. When does preschool end? I think preschool is like three to five, and then kindergarten is five to six, and then you start school. Yeah. So junior kindergarten essentially is like instead of being in preschool for one more year, you're basically in an accelerated version of preschool that will get you more prepared for kindergarten, which. How fucking prepared do you need to be to be in kindergarten? It's so absurd. I it's hear such these, an I easy these, grade. It might these, be the easiest grade. Well, I hear these parents like talk about like at a restaurant, like talk about their kids scouting for preschool, scouting for kindergarten. It's like what you guys are insane. It Put is. them in a public school and let them go, and they'll learn way more than they ever. <laughs> to see, I I kind of wish that had happened. I wish that I had had the experience of being in a public school when I was young, because my older sister did. And she learned quite a bit from it, or at least she says she does. I just think it's good for your perspective. It's good to grow up with people. Well, in it's different more of areas. a microcosm, unless yeah. unless you're being trained to be in that one microcosm of. Well, that's kind of what happened. <laughs> yeah, that's you know that's kind of what happens. Is like you get raised in that bubble, so you you know it molds you, and then you kind of grow up with this fucking you know 
distorted version of, of the reality that is, and you either have to pop the bubble or live in it for the rest of your life. And I had, I had the urge to pop the bubble from very early on, uh, and I just couldn't really until I moved away. Were there points like when you were in high school and middle school that you said you didn't want to go to the private school yeah. anymore? Yeah, yeah. And because the public school in my in my district was fucked up, it was. I mean, it was there was they called it TJ's uh, Thomas Jefferson High, and it was notorious for shootouts and uh, terrible parking, terrible parking, <laughs> and uh, A lot of shootouts over parking. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. No, it was it was just it was a rough. So it was, a rough it was too much of an extreme. It was too much of an extreme. I think basically my parents were like, if you really hate your school, which I did, uh, if you really want to go someplace else, we're not going to stop you from that. So I molded over for a while and I was like, well, see, from like sixth, sixth grade to 12th grade, I was basically just like waiting to go to college. Just I was waiting to move out and, and reinvent myself, go to a different place and become a different person. And uh, I always thought to myself, since I go to this school, it, it's, it was a good private school. Um, I knew that my chances would be better at going anywhere that I wanted to go if I wrote it out. If I just stuck, you know, suck it up and graduate. Play the game. Play it, yeah. And just, you know, keep your head down and, and get to where you're trying to go. So I basically just did that for all of middle and high school. And, uh, you know, so were you uh, in high school? Were you working at all or was it just focused on academics? And yeah, it, it was. Yeah. I mean, I was pretty busy with other shit because uh, I played I played sports and uh, I played cello uh, in between music and sports and school. I was pretty busy most of the time. Isn't it crazy to think about the high school schedule? Like when you look back on I it, no. It's like right. I woke up at six thirty to go to be a class at seven thirty, and then you stay and play sports until five thirty, and then you have homework to do. It's like, what, why are you expecting so much out of these I adolescents? Know. But you know what? The other thing is that uh, when you're young, you have a lot of energy, right? And you don't know the difference. You haven't experienced not that schedule, so you're yeah. trained to do it. Exactly. So you don't question either. Of course, of course. And then you like you get a taste of freedom, and then you start to get a little lazy. Well, it's funny how they immediately go from 18, graduate high school, and then college, and then you're in class for maybe four hours a week. You know, or it's five hours a week, six hours, whatever. It's minuscule I know. compared I know. to what high school was. And all, I mean, basically what happens in college is that the workload gets switched from the classroom setting to an individual setting, whether you want to be in a library or your room or whatever. That's where the work takes place. Not the case when you. So you went to college, I assume, I since you know that about that workload. Yeah. I what's your What's your alum? I am a Wisconsin Badger. Oh, the Badgers represent represent. I bet you never had a Badger on this podcast before. I haven't. No, not yet. Well, there's not a lot out here, really. And yeah. actually, there's a surprising amount of Wisconsin graduates here. Well, Madison, I hear, is a really cool place. Fucking awesome! It's fucking great. It's a huge party school. It's a big school. Sports atmosphere is great. Uh, the education is is great. It's all around a plus college. And you were there. You didn't live there after college. No, you were there the whole time. Uh, I lived. I lived in Madison. 
for probably about six months after I graduated. I, I stayed through the summers all four years because in Wisconsin, you know, if you're going to leave for the summer, you're kind of an idiot to do that because you spend nine months of winter to just go back home for the summer. It's stupid. So I decided that I wanted to work in Madison over the summers every year. And I did that after I graduated as well. And since I didn't really have anything lined up, I stayed there for another three months or so. That was the first time you were you had a job was in college? Uh, yeah. What were you doing? Well, I had jobs. I had jobs in the summers when I was in my sophomore, junior, and senior year of high school. Okay. Yeah. Just like camp counselor. Yeah. My first job was like construction. Yeah. I worked construction, which is funny because I couldn't do shit. I couldn't do anything, so yeah. they would just give me these menial tasks, and I'd like just waste time for like six hours and do actual work for like two hours. I felt like I was in their way most of the time, but I did learn a lot. I mean, it was like landscaping and like construction on buildings and st- I mean, classic high school jobs. It's yeah. too young it to was, do anything a, else. I mean, it was a good, it was a good first job. I it's someone, also kind of a nice experience to realize that you don't want to do that the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, when you work those kind of jobs, cause you're surrounded by people who have been doing that for yeah. an entire career. And not to say yeah. that it's bad because it is a job and everyone needs a job, but for some people that have better outlets. Oh, yeah. yeah. Plus, imagine being like a young kind of like private school kid and being on a construction site with guys that either fucked up their life or didn't have any better options than right. being in construction for the rest of their life. You can imagine the kind of looks that they would give me. It's like, what the fuck are you doing here, man? Google hunting. <laughs> you know, no, to, to a point. Though. It wasn't like <laughs> I wasn't that good at the no, job. No, you know? I know, I know, it was this pipsqueak is on the fucking set. It, I guess it would probably seem kind of maybe condescending to have someone like that on a construction set. The only reason I had it was because my fucking Sunday school teacher was the like the manager of that construction company and foreman. Is that a term? no? He was in the office. Ah. I don't, making the what's deals. A foreman? Isn't that like a a, I don't know. a sailor or something? I, I think foreman is is like a like the manager of the site. Is it? I don't know. I don't know. You would know better than I would. I don't. I don't <laughs> remember. It was a while. So ago. you work in Madison in the summer times. You doing restaurant gigs? Just uh, I worked in a liquor school? store in in Madison. Ooh, you've got to have a good story about that. I've got tons of great stories. Let's hear some liquor store stories. I mean, you got to have at least. Oh, I got I got a couple good ones for sure. Um, not to put you on the spot or anything, but I mean, I hear young college dude in a drinking town liquor oh yeah. store. Oh yeah, dude, I got. Do you know who JJ Watt is? Are you a football fan? He plays for the Texans, right? Yeah, he was a defensive player of the year last two years, I think. And he went to Wisconsin when I was there. And JJ Watt was a regular at my at my liquor store. I wouldn't say he was a regular, but. Because he didn't drink all the time, but his liquor store of choice was us. He came in one day, and uh, it was during the off-season, and bought a keg for, I'm assuming, a uh, house party or something. And the custom in the liquor store is usually to uh, to take the keg out to their, to their car after that, you know, because most people can't carry a keg. So half of the job of being at the liquor store was basically transporting keg like i would deliver kegs for people but i would also just take after they bought the keg i would take that and the tap 
out to their car and put it in there for them so that they could get it back to their place. And J.J. Watt gets a keg. And uh, he picks it up with one arm, and he curls it. The entire keg. The entire keg. Full, a full keg, half barrel. And uh, was he buzzed at this point? Do you think, or was he was he buzzed? Yeah, because no, he... I don't. I mean, he there was no sign that he was drunk at all. He was just uh, showing off. He's just jacked. Yeah, he's just an animal of a man. He just lifted the keg and he curled it, and like wrapped it over on his shoulder and walked out with the keg down the stairs. Uh, with a keg on his shoulder and just well, walked it out. And, you know, I don't know where he was living, but he just carried it over to his apartment or whatever like it was nothing. I was like, whoa, J.J. Watt is a manimal. So you just saw pure brute strength at its oh, finest yeah. in that moment. J.J. Oh, yeah. Watt. Plus, he was super nice. Yeah. Super nice I heard guy. he's a funny dude. He's very funny. Very just, charismatic. Yeah. Very nice guy. You should see the, some of the stuff that he's doing, like, off the field in the NFL, like he's he's got a lot of uh, I don't know, like he's a high character guy. Very interesting. He's he's got a hilarious Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. He's he, like he's he's loud in the in the uh, social media scene, but not in an egotistical way. And I feel cool like the dude. NFL needs someone like that yeah. to kind of he's, revive yeah. their image a little bit after yeah. the last few years of. All the controversy they've had. He's he's kind of like Peyton Manning, except less. He is he's less endorsed, and uh, and an animal on the football field instead of a general. The other great story I have about working at the liquor store is um, I became the general manager there after a year or two of working there, and uh, in the dead of winter, I was working by myself one night. Because it was like a it was like a Wednesday or something. It was just kind of a slow night in general, and there was a snow a snowstorm, and uh, with like an hour and a half left in my shift, the school declares that there will be no school tomorrow. Snow day in <laughs> Wisconsin. You never get snow days in Wisconsin. You got a better chance of getting a cold day in Wisconsin. Yeah. So you're going from from dead quiet night, and then the and snow then, day happens. Then they hear. Then the students all hear that there's a snow day, and right away, there's like ten people that walk into the liquor store, and I'm like, "What's up?" And they're like, "Dude, did you hear? Snow day, man. No school tomorrow." And I'm like, "Shit, fuck yeah!" Having no idea that your night's that the rush fun. is about to happen. So they come in, and then just by the dozens, there must have been, in the next, like, 20 minutes, there must have been 100, 100 people or so that had just walked into the liquor store, all of them buying shit, and the fucking register, I'm just, like, nonstop on the register, and... uh about 30 minutes goes by and I get a phone call and it's my it's my boss and he's like, "Hey, I heard there's a snow day. Did you get any more customers?" And I'm like, "Herbie, you need to get your fucking ass down <laughs> here. This shit is getting out of control, man. There's lines all through the store." I, yeah, I, they like, probably could have like taken that place over and you could have done nothing about it. I guarantee you we had hundreds of dollars that was just stolen that night because there was no one there to stop him from doing it, and the line was just super long. So he gets his ass down there, 
and he takes over the register and he's like just just start restocking and shit and like we did 10 times the amount of business that night as we would have on any other wednesday and i manned it all for the first hour of it uh it was crazy man so you you didn't even get to enjoy the snow day or did you after oh i did because it was the day after that Oh well, they were like preparing for the day after, kind of like day drinking. Yeah, the they snow. were they were basically they were they were stocking up oh, on okay. liquor. So I was that imagining they could like rage hey, all day. No the one next has day. to. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so it was wild, man. It was sweet. Yeah, I had a lot of snow days growing up, and they were they're the best. There's nothing better than hearing that you have a snow day. When oh you wake my up to god! Yours. Yeah, especially when you're like in in elementary school, like when you're a kid and you have a snow day. Oh, there's nothing. And better. it just feels like the longest day ever. Oh yeah, because you wake up at seven expecting to go to school. Oh and yeah, then you're, you're just like, like fuck yeah, I'm yeah. going right back to sleep. Yeah, or you're just like, let's go sledding, come over, playing video games all day. You just own it. Love it. Love the snow day. So you're going to college. Folks are paying for it, I assume, considering your background with the yeah. private school and all that stuff. So you're not worrying about debt? No, not really. What were you studying? Well, when I first got there, I uh, thought I wanted to be a psychologist. And then I failed introduction to psychology and quickly decided. I took that um, as like a, um, not a prerequisite, just like kind of a novelty. General, general, general ed. Education. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't realize how fucking much math there would be in it. It's all, it's very science oriented. <laughs> yeah, it's just like that's num- why I was data. I, it's all yeah, data. And I, I was couldn't. Like, I, I just couldn't want to talk and like figure people out. I know. Like, See, your, that's what I thought it was <laughs> to be your suicidal buddy. You know, like, dude. I thought I went into that class thinking that I wanted to be like, you know, a psychologist. And then as soon as I figured out what it, what psychology was actually, what it actually was, I was like, no, I just really wanted to be Robin Williams from Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, well, what about movies? And I went to my fucking advisor and I was like, hey, is there, you know, is there a film major? So you just really loved Goodwill Hunting. I loved that movie. Still do. Yeah. Amazing movie. I think we already brought that up in another random point in this podcast. And so you just let that guide your life. Kind of. A little bit. Kind of. I just thought it was a touching movie. And uh, it turns out that uh, they had the communication arts major. And uh, so they didn't have a specific film program. It wasn't specific to film. They had two tracks on the uh, communication arts. One was like rhetoric and like speech, basically, and the other one was so radio, like broad- TV, film, like broadcasting, like rhetoric as in the art of persuasion through speech, mm-hmm. dialogue and shit. I mean, it, so like how to be a dictator? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's what it was. Yeah. You know. You know, I I remember seeing it, it, one of the advanced level courses was uh, was uh, the, the art of uh, I think it was like the art of diction, but I read it as the art of dictatorship. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, I don't think I can do that rhetoric side. <laughs> <laughs> Not for me. Yeah, that's funny. That so you, you did you did dip into the other side though. They made you take at least one course uh, from the other side, just because that was the other track of the communication arts. They figured you were well more well-rounded that way Mm -hmm. so i took something i think i just took like an introduction to rhetoric or something And were you writing scripts and that kind of no it was more film analysis and critical theory and yeah like the first first couple years was um was film theory film history and shit and by the time i was a senior we got into production i directed a student film and then after that la 
after that, yeah, pretty much LA. I spent, yeah, like like I said earlier, I spent the next six months uh, in Madison trying to figure out what the next step would be. And then I was like, well, maybe I can go to LA and like put some use to this film. What uh, you've been here for how long? I've been here since January of 2012. And so, were you doing any acting stuff when you were in college, or just on, behind the production side of it? No, I never performed. I never performed anything. Uh, other than when I was in elementary school, like I said, that's a fucking waspy school, waspy private school. They put on musicals every year that every grade would do a part of the musical, which is – this is weird. Tell me – so, let me get your perspective. So one on musical and different scenes per grade? Basi- basically, yeah. So they would have a musical and each of so the grades like would perform a different part of it. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, – like a different part of the story. Let me get your perspective on this. So, mind you, this is an this is a, a small Episcopalian all boys school. And when I was in kindergarten, the first musical that they put on was Annie. Of oh all God. things, what are they trying to do, these boys? Like I said, yeah, fucked uh, up, right? Yeah, Having, like, not do. like you're you're making these kids cross dress <laughs> in kindergarten up through fifth grade. The second year they put on, or uh, another year they put on the Mikado, which is a Japanese kabuki theater. So not so only same thing. So, so they made like us cross, right? Yeah, it's like cross dressing, and we're playing Japanese people. How much more offensive can you get? Oh wait. The last year they put on Fiddler on the Roof, which is a Jewish play. <laughs> Jewish poor people, fucking crazy man. And like, was that like an attempt to get you guys out of your cultural shell, or was it just it, was there I any mean, rhyme or reason to it? The musicals were put on for the parents, plain and simple. None of the kids really wanted to do them, and it felt degrading doing it. You know, when you're a kid, you don't want to put on makeup and shit. And like there, of course, you put on makeup to be in a play. It was for the parents, but I can't help but like be really skeptical of their agenda there because of the types of plays that they put on. And like the other thing is that they had this thing called the Literary Society, and every every year you would have they split the uh, the classes up into two groups to kind of promote this uh friendly competition between the classes and the 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 separations were lees and jacksons named after (laughs) general robert e lee and stonewall jackson both confederate generals so every black kid that came into our school which i'm sure was on a confederate yeah generals and how many black guys are we talking about not many not many and eventually they changed like an outcast being a black kid in an all-white school but you feel even more outcasted when they yeah. name the literary society after Ex- two Confederate generals. Exactly, and then they're putting on musicals where you're cross-dressing and and playing Jews. <laughs> what did my parents do to me? It was just very like that's the bubble that I'm talking about. Yeah. It was very, it was very, um, it just seemed fucked up to me. It seemed, I don't, it almost almost kind of uh, abusive in a way. And I wouldn't say that I was traumatized or anyone else was, but when you look back on it, you're like, yeah, there's something weird about all that shit. And, you know, by the time I was a senior, um, 
the one gay kid that was out of the closet in our, in our class asked the school if he could bring his his boyfriend to the prom and they shut him down. Have really? Yeah, they said no, you can't do that. That's it's like you know you've been giving training us a bad me. You've been training me to do this my entire this life. This cross-dressing thing has been yeah. bred into First us of all, from kindergarten. All boys school, makeup yeah. in kindergarten. It was fucked up, man. I mean, it was there was there was a lot of reasons I didn't like my school. One of them was because I happened to go to that same school, that small school for my entire life. Everyone that went in and out of the school, I knew on the, every year. But it was also it was political shit like that. It was it was I don't know, it just didn't seem like real life to me. Yeah. Well, it really isn't. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. But I got a great education there and I got to go to my dream school. Have we re- we really haven't talked about money. We're gonna, much. We'll get there. It's fine. Okay. I mean, it, the whole like encompassing life of being in a private school has to do with money. I guess you're right. So, you know, I guess you're right. And we're just we're free flowing. People don't like private school kids. No, not really. You know? Yeah. We all, we had one that was a Catholic private school that was like the nemesis of everyone. Yeah. Because it was the only private school in town. Yeah. And you always think that those those guys are entitled, privileged jerks. Yeah. And a lot of times you're right. Like they they are. I most of the kids that I went to school with. By the time they had a driver's license, they had like a fucking BMW or some shit like that, yeah. like a Mini Cooper or some Jeep Grand Cherokee or some shit. Yeah, but that can happen. I mean, that happens at private school too. Yeah, but or public it, school. But at a public happens. school, you see more kids if they have a car that are getting a hand-me-down from their parents or yeah. some busted-up vehicle just to, you know, teaching the responsibility exactly. of having a car. Yeah. At my school, it was like. You, you get, get entitled as soon as you yeah, turn like you get a re like a like a like a luxury vehicle God, that pisses me off too because you see it like, like the other day I was driving and I saw these high school kids in a super expensive car it might have even been like a Ferrari or something yeah and it was just like oh, they shit. didn't even like look like they had pubes and they're just driving around this two hundred thousand dollar car there's, dude there's something wrong with that isn't yeah. there well there's no appreciation for the value of what that car oh yeah is worth or anything like that dude i had a friend he yeah like he uh he got a mini cooper as soon as he got his driver's license like a month later totaled his car drunk driving yeah like a couple months after that had a new car new brand new car and i was like what kind of lesson are you teaching your kids then no lesson no lesson or the lesson of drink all you want and drive all you want and life will take care of you yeah, not that I was in a position to judge parents at that time. No, not at all. But I don't know. It, like I never had a car in, until I moved out here. Uh, part of that is because I didn't want one in high school, and uh, I only lived a mile away from school, so I just walked to school every day. My brother had a car though, and it was my grandmother's '89 Buick LeSabre. Ooh. So that's the other example of like, you know, kids that get old cars that are pretty much you know, on their last breath, but you give them to their kids so that they have a little bit of freedom and they can learn what it's like to be responsible over a car. He was a little more sociable than I was in high school. So he, you know, he got around in in that Buick LeSabre and it kept him going until like just a few months ago. Wow. That's a nice plug for uh, the Buick company of longevity with their, their automobiles. Buick. <laughs> Buick. They'll be around almost as long as your grandparents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so great. Um, so I want you to talk about like moving out to L.A. a little bit because 
pretty much everyone that's been on the podcast, or a lot of friends that we have, aren't from here, and eventually yeah. have to make a pretty drastic move to come here. So, were your parents were they supportive of you financially and you know emotionally, or were they kind of like do what you you know apprehensive for you to come out here? Did you come out with a lot of money? Mm. Were you struggling when you first came out here? I'd say they were pretty supportive of me for the first year or so financially. My mom was always very apprehensive about me moving out here just because she thought I would turn into an asshole, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember, you know, when when I got on the plane, she, like, you know, she went up to the gate with me and <laughs> she said, she said, some, she said, like, John, I'm just afraid that the next time I see you, you'll be a person that I don't like. <laughs> and I was like, Mom, you have nothing to worry about. Yeah. I'm not going to turn into a different person, but, like, this is something that I need to do. Um, partially because, like, I knew, I knew I wanted to do something in entertainment. I didn't know it would be comedy right away, but I knew I wanted to do something in entertainment. And like I said, I had a film degree, so I was like... Why not move to L.A.? It's easier to be poor there than it is in New York. I'll just start a new life and see if I can do something in the field of entertainment that will be fulfilling for me in the long run. And, you know, reinvent myself in the process. So I was was super excited about it. And my dad was a little more supportive of it in that sense because I think he kind of, uh, he was excited that I was getting out of the bubble because he never really did that. And uh, probably wanted to when he was younger. Um, so I had his support there. Financially speaking, I had their, I had pretty much their full support for the first year that I was out here. Because basically, in November of 2011, just before Christmas, um, I convinced my dad to, let, to, to send me out to L.A. for a month so that I could... Uh, Basically, find a reason to move there. Scout it out. And... Yeah, it was. I was. But what I was trying to do is, I was trying to get a, a couple things lined up so that I could like convince my parents that I had prospects. And what that even ended if up you being, didn't at the time, even if I didn't, yeah. but I actually, I like, I, I ended up getting in that period. I moved to L or, uh, you know, I, I basically just started networking with anyone that I could. And uh, ended up getting two unpaid internships, which in hindsight aren't really prospects. They're not. They're free labor. They're free labor. But one of them was at the West Side. Yeah. So there's a lot that came from that. The other one was for this movie producer. I was working as like uh, an administrative assistant, basically. And I worked for that guy for like nine months. Um, and didn't he didn't pay me a dime. And eventually I had to be like, listen, man. And they don't bring, I'm like, broke. yeah, it's crazy how acceptable that is here. It's, yeah, here, especially. They really capitalize off of free. They're like, labor. oh, you don't want to work for free? We'll have someone else. And they yeah. always dangle this dream of you getting hired by the company after your unknown internship is finished. Yeah. And it never happens. It's, it's, it's kind of abusive if you think about it. Well, it's illegal. It's illegal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is. I think there's probably regulations and shit. Until I got the the job at the West Side bartending, I was living off of delivery jobs. Yeah, so you're struggling. I was eking my way through life. <laughs> yeah, for sure. By at like after I paid rent, I would have one two dollars in my bank account. So how does that 
man, because that's such a, a contrast between how you grew up yeah. in this comfortable upper middle class life. Yeah. And then to leave all of that and have one to two dollars with your name, were you kind of questioning your decisions or were you? Not really. I knew that's what I was signing up for. And I knew if it if it got dangerous, my parents would probably swoop in and save me. Okay. So Assuming you, so you I had w- a safety net. I had a safety net, but I didn't like asking for that help. I would live off of like fucking $10 in my bank account for like a week instead of asking for help. Yeah. Just eating ramen and shit and not going out and just like basically training myself how to live off of nothing. Yeah. Which is a, a good skill to have in itself. Yeah, but at the same time... You don't want to live that way forever, but it is a nice skill to have. When you really have to live off of nothing, though, like, it gets a lot darker. It gets bleak. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, oh, safety net parents or safety net suicide? Which one? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, as you can imagine, it would have an emotional effect on you. It would have, obviously, a financial effect on you and a social effect. But, like I said, I knew what I was signing up for. And because of the way I grew up, I thought that there was a lot of value in living like that. Um, so it, I didn't, it didn't bother me that much. And because I had the West Side, like the West Side was the saving grace there. Because if I didn't have the West Side, it would have been extremely depressing and isolating. Right. But when but you I could the West just, Side, that's social and economical yeah. for you because you're getting paid and you're around friends and around yeah. And back then, when I was Comics. the unpaid intern there, I could get into all the shows for free. I didn't have to and pay take free anything. Classes. And take free classes. So, like, the shit that was furthering my education in comedy would have cost me money had I not had that unpaid internship. But basically, what I was getting there was an education in comedy, free admission to all shows, and a social network, which was huge. Especially when you first move out here, too. Oh, yeah. Like, how many people do you know that it takes them, like, five years to just find a niche out here? Yeah. I found it pretty much immediately. And it was, I mean, it's still, like, I, because of the way I grew up, like I said, that bubble thing, I really didn't know what home felt like until I found the West Side. Yeah. So I'm extremely indebted to that place. Oh, it's amazing. I think we all are in some shape or form, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah, got our start there. So, oh yeah, it's. A, have you seen that documentary on the improv? Yeah, it feels like that to me. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I uh, when I was on Nick's podcast a long time ago, um, I had mentioned that and kind of how I feel that you know, in five ten years from now, you're going to see these people that are going to pop off, and they're like, well, it was all because of the West Side, and yeah, and some of those nights we had there together, and those holiday parties, and the, oh it's yeah, like you, we'll never forget that stuff, dude. How many comedy clubs do you know of that throw parties? I know, especially like that. None. No, I can't think of any. Comedy Store wouldn't do that. No, Laugh Factory wouldn't do that. None of them would do that shit. And the way the West Side does it is crazy because they basically just shut down the place for a night and say, "Hey, everybody in the yeah. family," and they take a hit. They like have, have dollar beers. Yeah. Dollar beer. Yeah. Dude, the West Side anniversary party. Remember that shit? Dollar PBRs. You could get like a delirium for like three bucks. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy, man. The markdown on all that shit was ridiculous. And I know they made bank that night. Those kind of like that, that action that the West Side takes to nurture their community and strengthen that sense uh, of, of bonding is 
very unique. Yeah, and it's invaluable. You yeah. have a customer for life, essentially. Oh, yeah. It's, awesome. it's like a country club with none of the money. <laughs> yeah. Or elitism. And way more fun. Yeah, way more fun. <laughs> yeah. Fuck golfing. I'd take Westside over that any day. So we have a pretty good background on you. Uh, we talked about having no money. I kind of want to open it up to some hypothetical scenarios and, sure. and then some more insight about how you spend your money. So say tomorrow you wake up and there's a million bucks in your bank account. How do you think your day-to-day life is going to change? Oh, man. And I'm not talking about, you know, like, of course, you get a house or whatever, better living situation. I'm talking about your hobbies. I don't even know if I'd do that. Yeah. Um, I think the first thing I'd do, this sounds like a stock answer just because it's the responsible thing to do. I'd get a financial advisor because I don't know. I don't know how to deal with money, man. I'm so I'm so shitty with money. Almost. All of what I spend my money on these days is like booze, food, shows. Yeah, that was my other question. Was like your vices? How do you? Uh, I get a lot of them. Yeah, I got a lot of. I like to party, man. I do. Right. But more than that, I like to be around comedians, and a lot of comedians drink until the late hour mm-hmm. and uh and i'm right there with them man like like dude i worked at a fucking liquor store in college you know i was delivering kegs in college of course i'm gonna spend a lot of money on beer but the problem is how much money i spend on it it's not that i spend money on it it's like it's not just a vice it's like it's probably a crutch Right. Yeah. I drink, well, if you I drink th- too much, man. And if you think about it, if you were to compare it in terms of like a pie chart or something, you're taking yeah. your spending. Because I just look at my, oh, yeah. I look at my statements, and it's all bar, 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 yeah. restaurant, bar. Yeah. You know, and it's not like I mean, if you were a fucking producer or something, you could get like like tax write it off, yeah. on that shit. But I mean, I guess technically we could do. You that. can. I did it this past year, actually. Really? But you can only do. You can up to do like it's like five grand, and then like total kind of creative expenses, and then after that, you really need to have like all your shit in order to like actually. You mean like save all your receipts? Exactly. Yeah. Like under five grand, you can kind of just be like, "This is an estimate." Yeah. And you'll get a deduction, but over that, it's like becomes a little bit more suspicious. Right. Right. At least that's what my person told me. So Uh, yeah. (laughs) Well, that's why I yeah. would get a financial yeah, exactly. advisor in that situation. You basically, pay someone to li- do your lying for you, yeah. right? or you know. Oh yeah, well, you yeah, you find someone that can like pull those strings for you and yeah. like keep you low profile. Precisely, you know, which is smart. Like the fucking government people do that too. You know, yeah, it's not like they're doing anything different. They just figured out a way around it, and most of us you know, are probably a little negligent when it comes to our taxes, get a little lazy or just don't know how we don't have the elbow grease to really figure out how to write that shit down and like make it believable for the IRS and the right. ones. And that, also um, being terrified of the outcome. If you do fuck oh, up, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. well, they'll fuck you up, man. Right. They'll fuck you up. But I don't know. I mean, I don't, it's not like I have that many possessions, you know? Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah, what what are they? I mean, they could take away my my car or my job or my house. That's pretty much all I have. But well, you don't own I'm your such, house. <laughs> no, and your, your job is you know they could just take yeah. some out of your paycheck, I guess. Yeah, it, I mean, plus I'm like, 
I, I'm barely above the poverty line. Yeah, it would, and just that's be like, just because just of the bartender. Be, it would gig. just be cruel and unusual punishment if they came after you. Yeah, it w- I mean, it would be a waste of their time. Yeah. and they know that. I actually had a buddy that told me uh, this year specifically that the IRS was so underemployed that anything like under two really? like under anything under two hundred fifty grand is like they're not even wash. Giving. Yeah. Well, the tr- like the it's not this year that's the problem. It's, you know, say in 10, 15 years, you're doing pretty well for yourself. Oh, like the, yeah, And then yeah. they check your past tax returns and they see a pattern of manipulating your taxes and scheming. Yeah. Like, that's what they're going to care about. Because, yeah, if you're making 20000 a year right now, <laughs> they're not, right. They're, you're not on their radar. <laughs> yeah. It's so fucked up, though. I mean, I get that we have to pay taxes, but it's just. It seems like excess. Like it's it's, it's yeah. So it much. sucks. <laughs> yeah, but it's like your tax on your your paycheck, and then your tax on what you buy. Yeah, and what it goes to. Right. We don't know what it goes to most of the time. The only thing we do know is a lot of it is going towards weapons. Exactly. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> you know. And so, like, if you were like, I wouldn't have such an issue with it if you could be like. Oh, put this percentage toward this or whatever. Yeah. You know, if you actually had a, a, a vote. Oh yeah, you, what well, you went your money towards. There's no way they could regulate that shit. No, like you said, the IRS is underemployed. Right. So, <laughs> but you can almost do that electronically at this point. Yeah, that'd be a good system if they. Yeah, like if they had like basically like a uh, like a. Like a nationwide version of TurboTax that was connected to all these different departments of government that, you know, like if you say, I want this percentage uh, sent over to, you know, you know, building roads. Yeah. Then automatically goes into that account. No middleman or anything like that. But then you have to wonder if you trust the software. Right. Well, the thing is, I think the reason why. You know, they don't do that is because there's so much money to be made in the private sector of, you know, so. Man, I can't even begin to speculate on how they're ripping us off there. Just because, like, the private sector, just that statement alone. (laughs) I know. It assures you (laughs) that you're getting ripped off somehow. Yeah. Your money is being distributed into places that you don't really want it. Yeah. And there's no way for you to find out about it. It's... The 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 no, the amount of fucking research that you would have to do in order to know what's happening with your money is probably so overwhelming that, to a depressing degree. Absolutely. Unless that's your thing, you know? Some people are really good with money. Some people are really, not just in terms of spending it, but understanding it. Understanding where it goes, how it's structured. Like, all that shit is over my head, man. Yeah. I'm not good at that stuff. And it's not... You know, day to day, it's not relatable to you. Not really, right? Not really. I mean, I yeah, I have pretty simple living expenses. Yeah, but that vices thing that that does that's that's a concern for me. So how is that going to change? I mean, you just have to make more money then. So if you had if you had the million dollars, would you feel as bad about having the vices or no? Or you probably don't feel bad about having the vices, but I don't really feel that bad because I mean. For the most part, most of my drinking occurs amongst comedians. So it in that way, not only is it like tax deductible, it's not in it's not 
fucking up my life, really. Right, it's like socially beneficial. It's not getting in the way of things, really. Um, If I had that much money... Shit, man. I don't know what I would do with that much money. I don't think I would get a nice car. I might move, but not into a really nice place, I don't think. I kind of want... Like, I want to... I want to keep myself light so that when the time comes uh where I can travel for comedy I want to be I want to be light on my feet so to speak you know I want I want my career to or my passion or my career to guide me not my money definitely you know? and then you know typically what people say about that too is that if you follow that passion the money comes as hopefully <laughs> well yeah I mean to what degree that money will be is unknown but you know, at some point, you get compensated for what you oh, yeah. are good and what you're passionate at. Well, honestly, I have full confidence that if I don't, if I don't live, you know, in terms of my finances, if I don't live the way I grow up, I'll be perfectly happy. I don't right. need that much. You don't need to match that. No. Yeah. No. It's I don't. I don't really care to. I mean, if I do, that'd be nice. But I care more about what I'm doing with my life than you know what i'm spending definitely so uh with that said do you have any like serious regrets or like terrible financial investments you've ever made in your life that are like kind of amount to a larger lump sum than just your vices if anything i i just regret not making more money um the money that i do spend like yeah i could spend a little less on booze but it's not like I have a gambling habit or anything like that. That's that's what you're really asking about. It's like, right? Are you a compulsive gambler? Did you, you be- did you yeah? yeah. <laughs> did you did you fucking invest in stocks that went over right or under whatever? Like not nah, like I, well, I, I spend I, my money on simple shit. Right, but I I've uh, asked people that question and sometimes the answer is college as an investment. Right, but you didn't. You but know. I didn't pay for right. college, which eliminates that. And actually, my parents didn't either. My grandmother put me through college. She got some of that Philip Morris money? And I don't think it's <laughs> Philip Morris. She got some her, of that slave money? What she got? <laughs> slave <laughs> money. Her husband was, um, during World War II, do you know who George Marshall is? Mm-hmm. He was uh, one of the key generals. And my grandfather was like his right, right-hand man. So... Between that and she has this, uh, she spent most of her life collecting Little Red Riding Hood memorabilia to like. No shit. Really... My, my grandmother had a weird uh, collection habit with porcelain dolls and puzzles. Too. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, they it all have like, weird yeah, collecting yeah, habits. It's like a weird but generational thing for maybe, maybe, well, maybe, age. <laughs> well, maybe that's just like that's the kind of thing that you start doing when you're old, you know? Right. But my grandmother's been doing it for most of her life. And she's 97 now. She spent a lot of time, like probably f- the better part of 60 years, like collecting just like little. You know, trinkets, like and... trinkets and old editions and uh, like basically all, just all this random shit that all had to do with Little Red Riding Hood. And it was like a really valuable collection. And I think she donated most of it to the Children's Museum in Richmond. But she put uh, 
I, I think, I mean, probably a, a combination of her and my parents put, put me through college for sure. And yeah, college, I would, t- I would completely regret going to college if I had to pay for any of it. And I'm not so sure. Did you pay for college? I did. Yeah. Well, okay. through loans. Sure. My Do parents you... helped out a little bit. I think they gave me. I think my mom gave me twenty grand over the course of four years, and then my dad gave me like fifteen. Yeah, okay. so they basically paid for like two, like a year and a half or two years. Okay. What's your perspective on? Because I know people have student loans into their forties right now. You know, a, a lot of people spend the rest of their lives really paying off student loans. Is the IRS really going to hunt you down if you don't pay those student loans? I don't know. I've heard I've heard multiple things. I avoid I pay like minimal like if they like after cuz like basically I get to the point of delinquency. Yeah. Or de- or default where like that really kind of they can actually like go into your paycheck and your bank account and take money. So you don't want to get to that point. No, you so don't. So typically I get to that point, make a deal with them and then repeat the process over again. Sure, sure, sure. So there's interest collecting, which isn't good. But whatever, I'm you know ignoring. You gotta you gotta pay what you can. Yeah, exactly. But I think, unfortunately, I think that student loans legally are the worst loans to have because you can't bank you can't go in bankruptcy with them. And I think they like once you're privatized loaner, um, like once you default on that, they push it to the government, and then the government really wants that money back. Oh, dude, I am so fortunate not to. Have that yeah, it's a, it's a. I mean, they got us good, man. Yeah, they got us real good. They got our generation probably the best out of anyone. Yeah, but at least you got an education out of it. I guess, which so. is bullshit, man. Because most people aren't really using that knowledge from college. Well, college is about the experience. It's not about the shit. It's you a, learn. it's a social education. It is. Well, it is. Right. And there is something to be valued there. But fuck, man. <sighs> I wouldn't recommend college to a lot of people. No, not at all. Well, I wouldn't recommend it, especially after at 18 when you've been in school your whole life. Yeah. It's too young, I think. Yeah. And then also the way that they design colleges is it's getting away from that, but they kind of have vilified like these community colleges Yeah, where you can actually transfer over credits for general ed courses, Yeah, which for some reason, even if you know your major, you have to take mathematics if you want to be, you know in whatever, something else that's completely unrelated, yet you're still paying the same price for both of those classes. Yeah. So why are you taking two years of general ed when you have no reason to be taking those general ed courses if you have your major already? Like college could I mean, be... They're really tricking you. Exactly. And it could be condensed down into like two years intensive education and then yeah. you would have the same experience. Yeah. Yeah, for, for they're sure. they're making shit tons of money off of it. Yeah. And I mean, in all honesty, you probably learn a lot more just joining the workforce, having a decent like like restaurant job. Yeah. For a couple well, of years yeah. and deciding if you want to pursue right. a college education while you're in college. Yeah, because so many people decide what they want to do in the midst of paying 40 grand a year in college, which is that's dumb. Yeah. Yeah. It's super dumb. And and now it's like there used to be more of a value for it because you're paying for the value of these texts that are hard to get or these professors that are hard to reach. But now with Twitter and the Internet, you can reach out to pretty much anyone. Yeah. You can teach yourself anything through a YouTube oh, video. Yeah. 
So oh, yeah, dude, it's like it that quote matter. from Goodwill Hunting. Do you remember? Do you remember when he gets in that verbal confrontation with that prick, Harvard prick, and the, he's like. He's plagiarizing some yeah. some textbook, and he's like, "What does he say?" He's like, uh, "You you you just pissed away, you know, hundred sixty thousand dollars on an education you could have gotten. Yeah. You could have gotten at the public library and like five dollars in late fees." Yeah, it's like, fuck, man. There's that is so fucking true. Yeah, that is so fucking true. If if you want to learn, you will learn. If you want an education, you can get it. Just. Just through Google. Now, yeah, exactly. You know? And there's this whole push that you will not be anything if you don't have a college education. See, that's what's fucked up, is that not only is that the mentality, but the job force, like probably, what would you say, like 50% of jobs won't even consider you if you don't have a college education? I don't know if it'd be that high, but like, have you ever asked, had anyone ever asked you to see your college diploma in your entire life? No. Exactly. No. So what? <laughs> how much follow up is going up? And you know, and then I see my buddy who's a welder and he has a trade and a skill and he makes 120 grand a year welding for seven months out of the year. There you go. You know, and these, see that seems way these, better to me. Right, and these jobs, these welding, plumbing, electrician, when you grow up, they're like that's not you know that's a a working labor job. That's not what you want to be. Yeah, they tell you. And like, then you oh, get out of here, and we don't know how to do anything. Yeah, but how to research? Yeah, and study. They tell you that's unacceptable for you to have that job. Right. You know, at least in my bubble, growing up. You know what's crazy? Like all of this, all of this that we're talking about with regards to just going to college. The same thing is happening for those kids in my in my you know who I grew up with, but with grad school. Mm-hmm. They go to grad school because they think it's the next logical step. Like that's that's a hell of a thing to do with with just undergrad. But when you go to grad school because you don't know what you want to do with your life, that's a real fucking kick in the nuts, man. And who knows whether they're paying for it or not. But like spending, dude, that's like thirty years of school after you're done with grad school to find out that you still don't know what you want to do with your life. Yeah, just it's like that is mind boggling. Yeah, and then it's like invest in yourself. Don't invest in an institution. Yeah. Like take that 80 rand and yeah. start a small business or just invest in that, you know, like or just figure it out, you know, like like a normal person would, you know, get a job, decide whether you like it, find out what you're thinking about on a regular basis, what are you dreaming about? Maybe try to take those steps, but like, oh man, People think that school is just the, the best answer. placeholder for finding out what you want to do in life. And really, it's just a huge money trap. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And I'm fortunate that I don't have I don't have any debt there, but almost everyone that I know out here either has student debt or like didn't go to college for most of, you know, what you would think of like either college dropouts didn't spend much of any time in college or, you know, are going to be paying college debt for the rest of their life for the most part. But it's, 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 a, it's a big scam. It's a scam is what it is. Yeah. You're right. This is such an uplifting podcast. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to, <laughs> I want to end it on a nice story that you told me about working in the bar at, uh, at Westside comedy, if you don't mind. Um, okay. so John works the bar occasionally at the Westside comedy theater in Santa Monica, California. 
And from time to time, there are these really cool, famous comedians who pop in. And John has a really cool story about um, one of those comedians. Oh, you want me to tell that story? Yeah. Is that okay? Do you mind saying that on on the record? I'll tell you the story. I don't. I, I'm not going to be completely explicit because <laughs> I don't want to lose my job. But about a month into working at the West Side as a bartender, uh, I'm working the Neil Brennan show on Sunday night, and uh, Neil Brennan was a co-creator of the Chappelle Show and um, one of Dave's good friends on it. I don't know how the you know that breakup affected them, but. As we all know, Dave Chappelle has been laying low in the scene since Chappelle's show, for the most part. And uh, every once in a while, they get special guests that just drop in unannounced. On this particular night, Dave Chappelle walks in with his cronies with, like, one comic to go. And uh, I look over the door guy, and I'm like, hey... Is that Chappelle? He's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm getting really excited. And uh, he goes up on stage, and uh, he proceeds to go for two hours. He has a two-hour set. There was a couple moments that that I will never forget. One of the things, he kept calling me Fonzie. Uh, I'm assuming because my hair is kind of slicked back. And he was busting my balls, I'm sure. But... uh, it was endearing the way he was doing it, and he got the crowd to laugh at it. And I felt like part of the show, so I was flattered. But he asked me, uh, when he's on stage, he's like, he's like chain-smoking, uh, which he's known to do. He's like he chain- Basically, the, the smoking law does not apply to Dave Chappelle. It does not apply to him. He will smoke American Spirit cigarettes in any indoor facility yeah. that he attends. Pretty much, pretty much. And, he, and he's doing that, uh, and he, uh, he asked me, he's like, hey, Fonzie. He's like, uh, he's like, let me get a Stella. And this was before we put Stella on draft. And, uh, and I was like, oh, we don't have Stella. And, and he's like, well, what's the closest thing you got to Stella? And I was like, Amstel Light. And he's like, man, that's nothing like Stella. <laughs> and I was like, well, you asked what the closest thing was. And he said, well, get me the closest thing to Stella. And I said, all right, I'm getting you an Amstel. <laughs> so he continues with his set. I give him the Amstel. And about 10 minutes later, he looks over at me. He goes, hey, Fonzie. I got to give you professional props, man. Amstel tastes exactly like Stella. <laughs> and I'm looking at him like, yeah, represent. And all the crowd's like loving it and shit. So I was flattered once again. But the best part of the night was after his set was over. And like I said, he, he went for about two hours. And towards the end of his set, he starts talking to his friend in the crowd. And he's like, hey, man, we going to the disco after this? And nobody knows what he's talking about because where's the fucking <laughs> disco in Santa on a Monica? Sunday night. Yeah, on a Sunday night at like 12. I assumed that he was saying that just to get people in the audience to think he was not going to stick around to hang out. Um, and after the show was over, he hung out in the green room for like 30 minutes or so just waiting for people to leave. And after the room is pretty much empty, just me and the interns there, he comes out of the green room and he pulls up at the bar. And the, uh, <laughs> this is, <laughs> he, 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 he pulls up and, uh, pulls out a cigarette that was not an American spirit. I'll put it that way. Uh, slightly fatter and smelled different. 
and he whips this thing out, and he's like, hey, I got this cigarette in Colorado. It's a beast. <laughs> so he, uh, so he, so I, I look at Jeff, the night manager, and I, I just look at him like, a, uh, lock the doors. And he does that. And he proceeds to uh, to light the cigarette, if you will, and uh, and we're just drinking and smoking and hanging out with Dave Chappelle. Was Neil there still at that point, or no? Neil, Neil was there for he was probably there for like twenty minutes or so. He doesn't drink, though, does he? I don't think I've seen him yeah. drink. I didn't know that he didn't, but. I, now that you say it, I don't think I've ever seen him drink. I've never given him a beer or anything like that either, so yeah, I'm not sure. Um, so what were you guys talking about when you were shooting the shit? Just Man, I remember we talked about Walking Dead. He was into that. Um, he told this great anecdote about when he was growing up in D.C., he was uh, he was volunteering for Planned Parenthood in, like, you know... When he's like in a high school urban area of of the DC. Yeah, and talking about uh how a lot of these kids were coming in and really had no sex education at all. Uh didn't really know what birth control was, didn't know that it existed and didn't know what you I mean they knew what condoms were but probably didn't use them. He just like his perspective on uh you know, basically the undereducated urban youth in D.C. And then he told this fucking, oh, man, he told this, like, really, <laughs> he he starts going into this story, and uh, he's talking about this this kid who I think was, he was like a, he was like a young tranny, and he basically, he's just like, he roped us into this long, drawn-out anecdote, and for a punchline, not just for a punchline. Like, I mean, he he like he had all of our hearts just like crumbling about this poor kid who was like a, a tranny had had AIDS and like basically just like <laughs> just the the wrong end of the stick with nearly every aspect of his life, and as we're all leaning in. And he he he's like, and you know what the most fucked up part is? And all of us are like, what? And he goes, I made that shit up. <laughs> <laughs> I got y'all. And all of us were like, ah, oh, fuck you, uh, Dave Chappelle. You got you us. You got Chappelle. You got us. Oh. It was funny, though. Um, and uh, it was, I don't know, it was cool. It, he just, he, he was hanging out, man. He was... Uh, Truly a man of the people that night and um, didn't have any interest in, like, blowing us off or being big time or anything like that. He's very humble. Um, almost, like, almost, like, self-conscious to to a degree of self-consciousness. Like, a couple times he said, like, I don't mean to keep talking about myself or, like, going off on my own shit. Like, you could tell he was a little bit in his head maybe. Um which, if you've seen him do stand-up lately, you can see that in him. Because that's how he works it out. I mean, he's yeah. doing two-hour sets. It's not but all laughs. But none of it's, it's material. Yeah, he just he, goes up there and he's just of talking. Consciousness. Yeah. I think he's trying to re- – he's he's refinding his funny right now, which is – honestly, it was kind of 
inspiring to me because it never ends. As you know, for the first two years that I did stand up, I never wrote anything down. I didn't write, like write jokes at all. I just went up there and just talked. I tried to just be funny naturally on stage. And when I saw Dave Chappelle doing that, sure, he's Dave Chappelle. He's earned that right. But I was like, my whole mentality with doing that in the first place wasn't just that I wasn't a good writer and too lazy to do it. It was that most comedians are trying to be funny their entire career. If you learn how to be funny and then get better at writing, I always thought saw that as like working backwards in a way, but also a good strategy. So it was kind of a relief to see someone doing that in the flesh. And it happened to be one of my all-time favorite comedians, the guy that I fucking worshipped growing up. But the uh, the last thing I'll say about the Chappelle story is, um, did I tell you about the Jordans? You told me, but yeah, yeah. But okay. Well, actually, after this whole podcast, this will this will probably resonate a little more. So, at the vi- like, basically everyone else left except for him and his drinking friend. And me. And I'm like, you know, restocking and shit. And taking a break every once in a while just to, like, chime in. Like, he was wearing the original Jordans. Jordan 1. On stage. Yeah. To the, the, the red and white ones. Yeah. like Jumping from the foul line. The classic ones. Yeah. And I, I noticed it. And I was like, man, those are the original Jordans. He's like, yeah, it was a re-release. But, yeah, these are the originals. Like, man, how much did I run you, man? It's like, he's cost me 300 I was like, damn. And then he starts to defend himself a little bit. He's like, uh, yeah, but if you, if you like, when I was growing up in my hood, if you had Jordans, man, everybody knew you were the shit. Everybody knew you were a baller. And it was like, you were the man if you had Jordans. And I looked at him and I was like, man, it sounds like in your neighborhood, Jordans were really a status symbol. And in my neighborhood, they were kind of the status quo. And he looks at me and he goes, man, you are speaking prose right now. <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. Dave Chappelle just flattered me again. Super nice guy. But with with what we're talking about with the bubble and, you know, growing right. up in a... Expectations versus... Yeah. yeah I mean, that's like, the, that's like the kids in my school having fucking Mini Coopers and, and Grand Cherokees and fucking... You know, BMWs, like, that's the status quo in my bubble growing up, is that you're just going to have nice shit, and that you won't necessarily have to work for it. You might get a job that you're, you know, that you're entitled to do, and uh, you won't really have to earn it the same way, and uh, obviously Dave Chappelle comes from the other side of that track, and I just thought it was a... It was a great. It's a great anecdote. It is like, that. and especially the fact that he, he never forgets where he came from. No, because Chappelle could afford many pairs of Jordan ones, but he yeah. still never forgets in high school not having them, and seeing the guy with them. You know, I think he's from kind of a middle class. He uh, well, yeah, but I mean, I don't think it's. But his perspective of living in D.C. like D.C. is very. Have you been to D.C.? I have. Yeah, D.C., like, the city itself is, like, 80% black. It is a very, I don't want to say diverse, but it's a it's 
it's an urban place. Everyone that works in D.C. doesn't live there, really. All those people on Capitol Hill, yeah, they live in Northern Virginia. Yeah. Arlington. Like Maryland and shit. Yeah. yeah. Like Bethesda and Arlington and right. stuff. D.C. itself is a very urban center. And uh, I don't know, man. It's, uh, it's a different world out there. And I get the feeling that I, I know he was, he was volunteering at Planned Parenthood. Like, that was true. That, that story, he actually did do that. The anecdote that he told about it, he was pulling our legs a little bit, but he did volunteer at Planned Parenthood when he was in high school. So you can imagine that kind of perspective that you have. Yeah. Pretty wild. Well, Big JD, John Davenport, bursting the bubble. He's out of the bubble now, guys. I'm out. I'm out of the bubble. I'm looking, I'm looking to a, expose myself to the people. Now he's, new, now he's in a new comedy bubble. We'll see. Anything else you want to say? You want to do any Twitter stuff or Facebook or any of that shit? Or you nah, gonna... I don't need to do that shit. <laughs> All right, dude. Thanks for doing the podcast. Appreciate dude, it. I love you, man. Love you too, buddy. What a good talk with my friend John Davenport. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Please subscribe, rate, share, like, comment, all those good things on SoundCloud and iTunes for the Talking Cash podcast. Thank you once again for tuning in. I'm Ben Blanchard, and remember that money is meant to be spent.